It's the 23rd of June, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week we have approvals. We have genetic studies. We're talking RA biosimilars and all the hot topics in rheumatology from the past week on RoomNow.com. I don't know if this is a hot topic, but I think it's an interesting topic, and that is long COVID. There's a study that we reported this week of over a 1,000 patients with newly diagnosed COVID. These are people who tested positive for COVID, and at the same time were either given metformin or placebo. And then they were followed for more than a year. The interesting thing about this was that patients who were given metformin had a lower risk of developing long COVID when you look 300 days later. Now, they defined long COVID in a standard manner. The incidence was 6.3% with metformin and about 10.4% with placebo, showing a 41% reduction if you were on metformin. I'm really not too sure about the biologic or or the interventional rationale here. I do know that they use, I think, other interventions that had no effect on the outcome. I think one was ivermectin. The other one might have been hydroxychloroquine. But the bottom line is that metformin had a protective effect. So that mean your diabetics might do better? I don't know. We'd want them to do better with, with regard to the acute COVID event. And we know that diabetics and comorbidity patients did not. But on the... On the topic of long COVID, which is somewhat perplexing still, it's not just fibromyalgia, that's PTSD and bad sleep, it's more than that. This is interesting and if not encouraging data. There's, being a, there's a greater and greater call for more research in this area. Uh, an interesting study looked at comorbidities in psoriatic arthritis patients. It's a really large cohort, tw- over 28,000 individuals, showing that c- comorbidities associated with psoriatic disease may be divided along racial lines. So, you know, you know all the things that are associated with diabetes, I'm um, sorry, with, with uh, psoriatic arthritis. You know, it's, it's diabetes, it's renal disease, it's obesity, etc. But turns out African-Americans are stricken by most of the things that you're familiar with. So hypertension is more significant, uh, significantly higher in African Americans compared to Caucasians, 59 versus 52%. Diabetes, 31 versus 23%. Obesity, 47 versus 30%. Gout, 12 versus 8%. All favoring those events, those comorbidities in African Americans. However, Caucasians were more likely to have more cancer than African Americans, 20 versus 16%. Anxiety, 28% versus 23%. And osteoporosis 14 versus 12. These aren't big differences, but did you know there were differences at all? I think that this, the the call here was maybe there needs to be some risk stratification when it comes to treatment algorithms for uh, patients with psoriatic disease. I think it calls for a greater awareness and a more aggressive management of comorbidities in patients who have psoriatic arthritis. A really interesting report about B-cell depletion and risk of infection. And I know where your minds are going. There's, you've seen some of the data. You're worried about some viral infections or some, you know, reactivation or serious infectious events. Well, this is a a fairly large, actually, it's a CDC report. Um, And it scanned the literature. 
and they found 21 cases of patients who were on either rituximab or ocrelizumab, another B-cell monoclonal antibody that obviously knocks down B-cell numbers, uh, has oncology indications. But 21 cases of rituximab or B-cell depleted patients who developed arboviral infections. And there's a number of arboviruses out there. The best known is probably West Nile virus. Then the interesting thing about this report was that these arboviral infections were bad and that they affected the CNS. They called them neuroinvasive infections manifest as um, either acute flaccid paralysis or uh, encephalitis. Uh, And more importantly, uh, the majority of these people, almost 80% of them died. So, um, and this applies to uh, rheumatology patients who are going to take rituximab. So realize there could be a risk there, and this might be an association, um, that using B-cell depletion might create the risk, which impairs immunity, may also um, impair control and therefore facilitate spread of the virus systemically. Also, because you're affecting human responses, usual serologic tests for some of these viruses like West Nile are going to be falsely negative. So if you suspect this, you've got to do the uh, PCR tests for West Nile and other arboviruses. Kind of a, a heads up here. EGPA, I think that the treatment algorithms are out there, but you know the question is whether or not you use, in addition to rituximab, whether you're going to use or other agents, methotrexate or azathioprine. This study, just of about 57 patients, looked at whether methotrexate was used initially as first-line therapy or um, after a DMARD and a biologic was used uh, second-line as maintenance therapy. And it turns out that the uh, both drugs performed equally well, and I don't think that was surprising. Although, what was surprising was that methotrexate patients were more likely to receive more, um, I'm sorry, uh, let's see, 7 grams versus 10 grams over five years. So methotrexate patients were more likely to use um, more steroids, 10 grams versus six grams, and they were more likely to have AAEs, two thirds versus one third. So, and the azathioprine patients had less ENT relapses. So maybe the slight edge for azathioprine? Um, I don't know, what do you think? It's a small report, but it, you know, any kind of data I think helps us in managing these patients. Um, looking again at psoriatic arthritis uh, and, and predictors of remission in people who go on a TNF inhibitor. So this is 13,000 plus bio-naive patients from 13 different European registries. And they looked at um, DAPSA remission as an outcome. Uh, and they showed that the six-month remission rate, in, uh, as, as measured by the DAPSA 28 score, was 25%. Another measure of success um, with the first TNF inhibitor was that um, 12-month retention rates were 63%, which is pretty good. Um, Predictors were younger patients. They're always better than older patients. Um, Disease duration, shorter disease duration responds better than long. Males, mainly because women have worse responses compared to males in most studies, most diseases. CRP greater than 10, um, meaning the more inflammatory you are, the more you come down and achieve a remission definition. So 
some of that's sort of logical, um, but it gave, I think it helps us as far as numbers in what to expect in your um, patients with psoriatic arthritis going on their first TNF inhibitor. Uh, an Optum's claims uh, analysis looked at uh, what's happening in the world of IgG4-related disease. Between 2009 and 2021, they found 524 p- claims for um, IgG4, and that was uh, sort of confirmed. They noticed that an increase in incidence over this time period, a four-year time period from 2015 to 19, from 0.78 to 1.39 cases per 100,000 patient years. A, that says really rare disease. One case per 100,000 patient years. Really rare disease. I got to tell you, um, in the last 10 years, I think I might have seen one. I know I saw one that was called that and turned out to be something else. Um, and uh, But this is a rare disease. Um, the point prevalence in 2019 was five cases per 100,000. The mortality rate compared to people who are age and sex match who didn't have IgG4-related disease, the mortality rate was 3.4-fold higher. So, A, I think all the news and reports and hard work of people like John Stone and others have um, heightened the awareness of this, and maybe that's facilitating an increased number in the diagnosis. So I don't know that we're seeing more disease because they're spread or there's an infectious uh, uh, epidemic here. I think it's just greater awareness and better criteria, etc. cetera. Um, yet it still is a hard disease to diagnose and manage. So a greater, I think, awareness is necessary. An interesting study from Korea um, genotyped over 1,600 lupus patients to develop what was called a customized um, uh, genome-related score, um, a genome-wide single nucleus. It was done by uh, SNP arrays, and they had this weighted genetic risk score. And what they found was kind of interesting and sort of reaffirms some of what I think I've said here before is that kids have worse disease than do adults when it comes to lupus. And in fact, they did find that the weighted genetic risk score was higher with uh, early onset or younger age SLE. It was also higher in people who had anti-SM antibodies, patients who had lupus nephritis, and patients who were were bound to have a more diverse array of lupus manifestations. Might this ultimately be a biomarker in the management of patients with lupus. Wouldn't be that hard to do, but it would be somewhat population specific, and at least they've worked this out um, in this Korean data set. Uh, A study of early RA patients looked at how frequent is patient-reported unacceptable pain. You know, patient reports of pain is probably the most important thing we should look at. Um, Physicians like to hang their hats on swollen joints. Patients are really concerned about painful joints. So 275 patients followed for two years. A third of them reported um, unacceptable pain. And that's just a patient definition. Predictors, uh, the best predictor of long-term unacceptable pain was really seen at the, not at baseline, but a three-month follow-up time point. And I think that's important. And that's why I included this. I think that three-month time point assessment is probably crucial. The predictors of ongoing unacceptable pain by the patient 
were the number of tender joints, but not the number of swollen joints. Overall pain scores. Patient global assessment and hack. Subjective assessments of the patient by the patient. Right? This goes along with some of the other data that we presented about central pain um, being a big factor, even in patients who have responded for instance, the biologic agents, this has been seen in RA and PSA and other disorders, that there's residual pain, even though people have achieved remission. And that seems like it's all fibromyalgia, in my opinion. I think some of this could also be people with heightened central pain that you could call fibromyalgia in some, but not others. And I think it's something that we don't really have a great strategy for, other than to say, make sure they're sleeping well, make sure they're exercising, make sure they're taking you know, safe pain medicines per regimen and that you're addressing their pain as best you can. As we talked in the in recent episodes that biosimilars are all the rage and they're now back on in play in the United States. There's a whole bunch of them in Europe. There's a total of, of 93 in Europe and there's 40 in the U.S. Um, and we have a new tipping point with eight new adalimumab biosimilars approved or going to be launched in 2023. This particular analysis um, has shown that in 2022, or I'm sorry, thus far in 2023, sales for the original drug, Humira, are down 26%. I think that would be expected. And they're making projections that that's going to continue. They estimate that with this new launch of, of adalimumab biosimilars that that increased sales are going to continue, that in the next five years, biosimilar sales will be $129 billion, uh, with an estimated savings of $181 billion over that same time period. I think this is very encouraging. This is one of the reasons why um, biosimilars were developed. Maybe the surprising big news of the week we announced uh, yesterday, uh, and it actually happened, I think, the day before, and that is the FDA has approved colchicine for cardiovascular prevention. Um, this is really um, uh, just for cardiology patients. It has nothing to do with you. So it's one of these instances where a company came in, did the studies, and now they have their own brand of colchicine. This brand is called Lidoco, um, and it's going to probably be available in the second half of 2023. It is for cardiovascular prevention in patients who have established atherosclerotic disease with multiple risk factors. They, they, this specifically is, looked, uh, is, is about reducing the risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, and coronary revascularization, also cardiovascular death. Um, this is big news because it's the first time an anti-inflammatory has been FDA approved for such cardiovascular prevention and protection. Approval is based on a recent study of 5,500 coronary artery patients um, that actually had a significant reduction in mortality rates. This was published in circulation in 2022. So um, this is big news. Um, we like it because it's our drug. Aren't you a little bit, um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> interested in when other disciplines discover our drugs and find new uses for them? This is the case here with colchicine. It almost happened with hydroxychloroquine <laughs> it with COVID, that didn't work out. But nonetheless, here, you know, we know everything about colchicine. We know certainly about how it went from being pennies to being dollars per pill. Um, and while the cost of the new drug is not known because it's going to be released in, later this year, um, 
the manufacturers have said um, something to the effect like we're going to work hard so that patients who don't have financial resources, there'll be programs for them. Uh, that always worries me. That means they're going to charge the hell out of the drug. And for people who have no money, they'll be able to give compassionate use uh, for it. Um, what are we paying for colchicine these days? As you remember, colchicine used to be like five, six cents a pill. It went up to $5 a pill when it went on to patent. Now it's no longer on patent. And so this, but this will be a patented product. So this could be $5 a pill. Currently, the, you know, those newer forms of colchicine, Colchrist and uh, Mitigare and, and the other ones uh, are off patent. What do they cost? Right now in the United States, a month supply of a 0.6 milligram pill, one pill a day or 30 pills. Um, the list price on that, the retail price, about $130 to $260 for a month. But the discounted price, it's widely available with a simple coupon like GoodRx and others. It's $20 to $55 a month. So that's not too bad. But again, this new one for cardiovascular indications is likely to be much more expensive, in my opinion. We'll see. Um, a nice report from uh, Arthritis Research and Therapy about the safety of abatacept based on a registry analysis from seven different registries. Over 5,000 RA patients who were started on abatacept showed, one, the serious infection rate, the hospitalizable infection rate was four to 100 per 1,000 patient years. This is, it was generally lower than about one per 100 patient years. That's, I think, very encouraging. Um, opportunistic infections, obviously, and TB, much rarer, 0 to 14 per 1,000. Or in the case of TB, it was 0 to 6 per 1,000 patient years. Malignancy risk is 3 to 19 per 1,000 patient years. Again, there's outliers on the high end and on the low end. And the, the, the middle basically says that uh, the numbers here, I think, confirm um, the safety of abatacept. You know, in head-to-head -head studies, either claims data or uh, registry data, usually when they compare major safety outcomes, they often use abatacept as being the lowest and therefore the reference. Um, it may still be one of the safest of the biologics we use, and this data sort of supports, supports that. Um, ULAR came out with recommendations that, at, at ULAR and were published just recently uh, on Im use of imaging and crystal-induced arthritis. The takeaways on that are important in that it's best to do your imaging of the most commonly involved joint for that disorder. So in the case of gout, MTP1. In the case of um, CPPD, cal uh, chondrocalcinosis, uh, it's wrist and knee. In the case of um, uh, uh, basic uh, calcium uh, deposition disease, it's the shoulder joint. So um, they also said that uh, in the assessment of gout, it's okay to use ultrasound and deck scanning. Um, not a lot was written about conventional radiography. I assume that that's also being used. When um, you have characteristic features of monosodium urate deposition on ultrasound, such as the double contour sign, or on deck scanning with an appropriate history, they say it's not necessary that you do synovial fluid analysis for crystals. That's, I think, a new development. And then lastly, in the diagnostic assessment of CPPD, conventional radiography and ultrasound are recommended. And if axial involvement is suspected, CT of the spine would be the imaging modality of choice. 
We're going to end with a uh, Ask Kush Anything. Um, this is a question from um, Dr. Bruce Hoffman. Oh, here we go. I'm not sure why this isn't playing. Sorry, Bruce. Bruce's question had to do with, um, he saw the reports on the Epipra study and Abitacep at ULAR um, showing that it works. He also mentioned that the methotrexate data looked like that might work. Um, and he says that, you know, the experts, when they discuss that, they are still somewhat all over the map with many just agreeing on symptomatic management. His question was, Someone who shows up with arthralgia only and ACPA positivity, how would I treat them? Well, number one, I do have a, a recent video from um, ULAR that I addressed this, meaning a, a synthesis of all the preclinical RA data that's come out in the last few years. I think the evidence is very clear. So while Bruce said that methotrexate may be indicated, the treat earlier study failed in its primary endpoint, showing that methotrexate didn't work. But if you did sub-analyses of different things like hack and, and pain uh, or even MR scores, it looked like it might work. But again, in its primary endpoint, it failed. And that sort of confirms the data that was seen in the PROMP study. It didn't really work. Uh, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Stop RA shows it doesn't work. Um, you know, steroids have obviously limited value here. He wants to know about DMARDs and or biologics. And the only biologic that has consistently worked in all the studies, at least in delaying the onset of disease, if not preventing disease, is abatacept. The Aria study, the Epipra study, the one done by Paul Emery um, 10 years ago, all say the same thing. Those significant delays when you use abatacept. So, Again, if it's your mother or your mother-in-law, if it's your mother-in-law, she gets symptomatic management and a dose of steroids. If it's your mother and you're really worried and she has insurance and you can get this paid for, I would use, and I'm going to use going forward, abatacept. Given that this data sort of has come together recently, I haven't yet done that. But I'm, I'm going to do that because it does delay the onset of disease. And someone who presents to you, you know, especially if they have a family history, especially if they have more than one joint that's hurting and they're worried about getting RA, and they themselves are active positive. You know the data that we've talked about before, if you're active positive with arthralgias, the odds of developing RA in the next year or two is 30%. That number is ratcheted up the more factors you have for being first degree relative, having acute phase reactant, having uh, inflammation by imaging of some sort, ultrasound and or um, uh, MRI. Uh, Obviously, swollen joints, boom, you now have rheumatoid arthritis. But as you ratchet up and get closer to the diagnosis, really, I think you have an obligation to be as aggressive as you feel comfortable. I would use abatacept in the case that you outlined, Bruce. Anyway, that's all I got for today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Tune in next week. We'll do more of the same. Be safe.